Welcome to our latest webinar as part of the Aussie Speaker Series, Let's Talk. My name is Amy Conacher, and I am the Executive Director of the Australian American Chamber of Commerce, and I'm excited to have you all with us today. Our Aussie series is designed to be a platform for sharing digital content, which brings together innovators from the US and Australia across the medical, energy, government, and technology sectors. Before we begin, we would like to thank our generous sponsors for their support, BHP, United Airlines, the Australian Consulate General Houston, Platypus Brewing, Chevron, JLL, Macquarie, Worley, Air New Zealand, Energy Conference Network, the Fervid Group, Rystad Energy, and UHD Maryland Davies College of Business. Without their support, our programs would not be possible. Tonight, we have Dr. Tony Piedra from the Baylor College of Medicine, and he's going to be speaking with us um, and having a Q&A with Richard Gibbs. I want to get started right away so that you can get the, the good information that you logged on for. So I want to introduce you to Richard Gibbs. Richard is a board member for the chamber, and we're excited to have him as part of our board. And he is also the founder of the Human Genome Sequencing Center, which is at Baylor College of Medicine. So I'm going to hand over to you, Richard. Uh, thank you very much, Amy. Uh, welcome, everybody. It's my enormous pleasure to introduce my colleague from Baylor, Dr. Uh, Tony Piedra. Um, Tony has um, been involved with flu and coronaviruses for a, a long time. He's a professor of microbiology and virology at Baylor. He performed uh, pioneering work on Rausakama virus in children, and he's led this large flu prevention program for many years. So Tony is now at the cutting edge of development of antibody testing for SARS-CoV-2, which is the cause of COVID-19. And so that's why we got him here today because he's got some exciting developments to share. Maybe we could start off, Tony, by just asking you, please, to tell us the difference between antibody testing and other kinds of testing and what's important about antibody testing um, to introduce those who aren't so familiar with the whole field. For sure. First, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And if I may just correct one statement that Richard said, I'm a pediatrician as well. And one of my true loves is respiratory syncytial virus that oh. also has, sounds like Rouse sarcoma virus. So it's yeah. respiratory syncytial virus. Thank you, Tony. So, I stand corrected. Not a problem. But um, one of the benefits that serology can offer uh, and it's different from a PCR test or a diagnostic test uh, for an acute infection, is that it can look at a population as a whole and tell you how vulnerable that population may be for, in this per, uh, case, for SARS-CoV-2. So if we have a population that uh, has a seroprevalence, let's say, of under 5%, we know that that group, uh, and that might be us, uh, that population will be exceedingly susceptible to the next round of, um, or next wave of the COVID-2. And so serology uh, provides that tool. It can do other things, but I think one of the uh, strengths is to be able to tell um, a group or a population their vulnerability to that particular virus. So, so, Tony, in the test you're developing, you basically are screening or testing people's sera to see if they have an activity, an antibody activity 
that will react to a cloned part of the virus that you present to them, correct? And, correct. Yeah. And, and so if that's the basic format, it sounds so easy, what's so difficult about it? So, so I would say the hardest, um, and this is not unique to SARS-CoV-2, it is, it is uh, something that we always grapple with whenever we're developing serologic assays. And that's the reproducibility. And to be able to say what I see today will translate to the same thing a year from now, two years from now. And so one has to be very careful, just like with any type of assay development, very careful uh, in developing an assay that has good parameters and in being able to calibrate the reagents so that not only today are they useful, but 10 years from now, they can give you exactly the same results. And so it is uh, taking that time to small details to truly be able to develop a, 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 a reproducible and reliable assay that is meaningful over time. So, so a hallmark of a good antibody assay then is specificity and reproducibility over time. Yes. Tony, what's the progress you've made? I've seen your presentations, but can you explain the, uh, the specific advances you've been able to achieve? Absolutely. So um, we have to start with good quality reagents and, and we've been able to partner with uh, an industry uh, sponsor that has provided us with the spike protein. I wanted the spike protein because that is a major surface glycoprotein for coronavirus and if you're gonna try to associate uh, correlations with protection, it's worthwhile to use the spike protein rather than the nuclear protein uh, for which antibodies are gonna be generated uh, and many of them will be neutralization, neutralizing antibodies. So our, we have an ELISA-based assay, which means it's a binding antibody assay. Uh, we're looking at IgG and later on we'll look at IgA that is specific to the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2. One of the problems that uh, occurs is that there are other human coronaviruses, there are four other known human coronaviruses that circulate, uh, especially during the fall and winter months. And they cause repeated infections uh, among all age groups uh, throughout life. And so many of us have low levels of antibodies against the spike protein to COVID-2. Uh, we actually also have T cell, uh, uh, and we're not gonna talk about the cellular immune response, but we have in essence been a little bit primed. And so when we're setting up this assay, we need to be able to distinguish what is the regular human endemic background compared to what is uh, a true antibody response induced by the novel, uh, by the SARS-CoV-2. Uh, and so uh, you require really uh, a, a large number of, of individuals from which you collected pre-pandemic samples from before the outbreak and from individuals that you know have had PCR confirmed COVID-2 so that you can well distinguish an immune response associated with COVID-2 versus the human endemic coronaviruses. And, and, and from what I've seen, you, you're really at the 95% and more level of detection 
of individuals who've come through your test group versus your control group. Is that a, is that a yeah, so, summary? So for specificity, for specificity, we're close to 99%. For sensitivity, we're in the 93%. And the reason that is so is that this assay is not looking to say, are you acutely infected? This assay is truly asking you, how much antibodies to the spike protein have you developed? And we have to distinguish that from background activity. And there's about five to 7% of PCR confirmed individuals that just have very low levels of antibodies uh, that you could not distinguish from background. Uh, and this is at four to six weeks post-infection. Thank you. Tony, I think um, just before we throw the discussion open to everybody, I think what many people might be asking themselves is kind of which test would I want under which circumstance? And um, I wonder if you could kind of answer that very high level question and then go on to say all of the other things that will result from the availability of the assay that you have developed. For sure. So it depends on the question that you're asking. If one is asking a question like, have I recently been infected, let's say in the last several days with uh, COVID-2, then you want an assay that is able to look at IgG and IgM and possibly IgA antibodies uh, or total antibodies to whatever protein. It can be to the spike, to the nuclear protein, but to a viral protein. And you develop the assays to answer that question. That question will not say, are you protected? And how long will you remain protected against COVID-2? There you need different type of assays. And assays that look at antibodies to the spike protein, micronutrialization type or neutralizing antibody, what we call functional assays, uh, become very relevant. And you need time. You need to be able to establish what is the normal uh, responses that are being induced with natural infection and follow those individuals with both binding and functional antibody assays to try to address how long do I remain protected against a reinfection? And if I get reinfected, do I have the same severity of disease or not? Tony, almost all of the testing going on right now is not antibody testing. It is PCR testing, just looking directly to see if copies of the viral RNA genome are there. Do you see a year from now that serology antibody testing will replace all of the PCR tests? Or do you think the two will prevail as the antibody tests evolve? They're both complementary. Uh, PCR tests will be here to stay. Uh, just like I hate to say, COVID-2, I believe, will be here to stay uh, and will become part of our natural um, human endemic coronaviruses a decade from now. Um, and PCR is actively used in the hospital and the emergency room to identify not just COVID-2, but whether you're infected with flu or RSV or some other respiratory virus or bacterial pathogen. So there's always the need for molecular diagnostic tests like PCR to identify what pathogen you may be infected. Serologic assays complement that. And not so much for identification of an infection, although that's 
what many of the current assays are uh, developed for, but they become more relevant when we start evaluating vaccines and trying to understand better the, the role of the antibody and cellular immunity generated by vaccines or natural infection. Um, I'm going to say that if anyone in the audience wants to ask a question, Amy, can you prompt that? Otherwise, I've got plenty. Yes, sure. If you have a question, I think most of you have been on one of our um, Zoom meetings, so you can raise your virtual hand using the participant list and click next to your name, and a little blue hand will raise up, um, or you can use the chat tool. If you raise your hand like this, I might not see it because I can't see everyone on the same screen. So, I, go ahead, Richard, with another question while people are, are continuing to think about what they might want to ask. Thank you. I wanted to ask Tony, you know, you, your data are spectacular, Tony, but how many other parts of the virus are other people working on developing antibody-specific assays that you're aware of? So there are a variety of different uh, assays that we can talk about. Um, another assay, uh, which is looking at antibodies to a very uh, specific site on the spike protein called the receptor binding domain. And the receptor binding domain is, is relevant that it attaches to the host receptor, the angiotensin-converting enzyme 2, or ACE2. And so there are a variety of binding antibodies that are developed to that. Another uh, that uh, has generated a lot of interest, and we're working on it as well, is called a receptor blocking assay. And, and that is kind of like a, a poor man neutralization assay. It's really trying to... Uh, uh, utilize the ELISA technology, but uh, with implications of functional activity. And what uh, the assay does is to look at antibodies that target the spike protein and prevents the binding of spike protein to ACE2. And if you can prevent that, that's basically a, a neutralization assay. That's what a micro-neutralization assay does. It looks at functional antibodies that prevent the binding of a virus to its host receptor. And one is doing this more in an ELISA setup so that you can avoid the use of BSL-3 type facilities. Another uh, type of assay that people are, are looking at um, in order to avoid the use of BSL-3 because that drives up cost and resources uh, and if one wants to try to look and get a handle at, at functional antibody activity, it's called these uh, pseudotype uh, uh, vectors that contain the spike protein. So they're, they're either in a lentivirus, and a lentivirus, or a vesicular stomatitis virus that are transfected with the spike protein of uh, COVID-2. And then they look at antibodies that target the spike protein to see whether they're able to prevent the binding and the infectivity of either the lentivirus or vesicular uh, uh, stomatitis virus. And so those are pseudotype uh, uh, neutralization type assays that are also in development uh, just simply to avoid the issue of BSL-3 facilities. Tony, I'm, I'm going to take the liberty of translating because I've been on some of these sessions and heard terms about oil production and energy transformation that have bewildered me. Many people here may not have heard of the BSL-3 and know that there are different grades of uh, containment necessary 
for working with hazardous biological materials. And a BSL-3 is kind of a pain in the butt because you have to train, you have to uh, gown up and have special pressurised facilities and all that kind of thing. And that's why, and that, Tony, if I'm correct, that's why you're so enthusiastic about these pseudo-type viruses that are not the real virus, but carry the real targets so that you can work with them more safely and develop your antibodies. No, absolutely. So BSL just means biosafety level. And for the majority of the respiratory virus, just so, so that you have a better appreciation, for the majority of the respiratory viruses that circulate, we uh, need BSL-2 uh, environment, biosafety level two. And that's not very hard to achieve. That's being achieved in a, in a particular biosafety cabinet with good handling techniques so that you don't infect yourself. BSL-3 is a higher level uh, where everything becomes that much more regimented. You go in and everything is regulated. Whatever goes into that room stays there, cannot come out. Um, and it really drives up the cost. You have to wear special uh, garments, special gowns, uh, and you're really restricted by the amount of material that you can work with. So for the same work that we can do, uh, it probably costs 10 times as much and slows us down 10 times as much than what we could do in BSL-2. So BSL-3, I prefer to say, use it for confirmation of findings in BSL-2 lab. Tony, um, uh, thank you. Uh, Chris Craddock had asked the question about the prospect for a monoclonal antibody that binds to and blocks the spike protein. But this is, uh, as you were talking about a little earlier, in the arena of a neutralizing antibody. Am I correct about that? Or would a neutralizing antibody be directed to the receptor and be distinct from something that directly, does any antibody that interferes with function of the virus get classified as a neutralizing antibody? But, but the neutralizing antibodies are, are truly, like you stated first, they're geared to the spike protein. Um, and monoclonal, there are a variety of monoclonal antibodies that are being generated that can target kind of different areas on the spike protein. The problem with a monoclonal antibody, and we've seen this a lot with respiratory viruses, and this is an RNA virus. And, and what that means, what that translates, an RNA virus, is that it's very mutable. It will change. And so a monoclonal antibody targets a very small uh, site, several amino acids. And it is not unusual over time for the virus to mutate so that it becomes resistant to a monoclonal antibody. Uh, and so when we do monoclonal, uh, monoclonal antibody studies, we have to uh, ensure the stability of the virus over time. If it mutates rapidly in vitro, you know that's going to be problematic in vivo. Tony, I think we've got a couple more minutes. Can you, you've been involved in the plasmapheresis therapeutics. Um, would you like to make a comment about that and, and also the role of the antibody work as it relates to that? Absolutely. At the beginning... Um, maybe, maybe you should explain... Assays, what that is, yeah. I'm it, sorry? You should explain what that, what that involves, what that therapy is. Yes. So, so plasmapheresis is basically um, you go to a blood center, they uh, put a, a vena puncture, they put a, a needle, and they uh, remove the plasma 
the, the blood component without the red blood cells. So it's all the liquid without the cell material with the assumption that you have good antibodies to whatever pathogen you're going to use to treat. And so in infectious diseases, when we don't have vaccines or antivirals, one of the modalities of treatment that we can have and used in the past is antibodies. Um, and antibodies have been used for a variety of different diseases, especially when somebody is very sick. And so plasmapheresis attempts to obtain uh, plasma from individuals who have been infected previously with COVID-2 with the assumption that they have neutralizing antibodies. And when it's transfused to a susceptible individual, it will be beneficial. A lot of the plasmapheresis donation that has occurred has occurred without knowing the level of antibody activity the donors had. And now we have serologic assays that allow us to measure the antibody activity of these donors. And so we have started doing that with a Gulf Coast uh, Blood Center uh, to be able to identify potential donors who have higher antibody activity and see whether it will translate to greater functional property when it's transfused in the uh, individuals that are sick. Thank you. Um, oh, we have another question on the chat. We have time, Amy, for one more? Uh, one more and then we'll move on. Thank you. Um, from, from Volker. Um, do you think we will all be tested for antibodies as a routine thing next year? And will it affect our daily lives, such as in an antibody visa? I guess an antibody visa is a certificate of immunity that you can carry. Good question. Tony? Good question, and that's a very futuristic type question. Um, I hope not. I say I, I hope not. Um, I think if you have a specific question of why you want to test, again, issue of vulnerability, I think that from a research perspective or, or from an epidemiologic pers perspective, public health perspective, that would be relevant. But to start saying, you know, to go to work and say, let me see whether you have antibodies or not, uh, doesn't tell you the full story. There are, like I told you before, there are people who've been infected and have no evidence of antibodies uh, above human endemic viruses. But that doesn't mean they're not protected because they may have cellular immunity. And so I would hope that we don't come to use uh, this passport as a, as, as a way to say who is allowed or not allowed to work. Thank you, Tony, and, and thanks for the question, Volker. Uh, I'm going to pass it back to Amy, but Tony, thank you so much. To me, that was a, both uh, extremely informative on the, on the points asked, but also a good uh, overview of the complexity and the state of the, of the field. And I'm going to impose on you to say, I'm going to give your email to anybody in the group who's going to <laughs> ask for it, and, uh, and I know that you'll be pleased to correspond with them. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Tony. Yeah. Thank, thank you very much, Tony and Richard. That was very informative. And I know it's a topic that a lot of us have, have heard the buzzwords. And so it's good to have the information to kind of tie that in um, together. So thank you.